jot different than most sermons I'll ever do. Usually I take a passage, a shorter passage like a paragraph, try to explain it in some detail. In this case, it is just the opposite. I was trying to figure out how to explain what I'm trying to do so you understand what I'm trying to do this morning. And the best illustration I could come up with is one that happens once a year at the Mallfair family. We get together right before small game season starts and we have a claybird shoot. Now, after the claybirds are all gone and the shotgun shells are all shot, uh, we get out our pistols and we get out our rifles and we do that. I'm not that really all that good at that. Um, I'm just not steady enough for that. So I'm not good at that. But I do have decent with a shotgun. And my shotgun, some of you don't understand this, but mine has a really tight choke. At 50 yards, I can still hit a clay bird and it just turns it into powder. On the other hand, I have some nephews. We call them street sweepers. They have shotguns that have short barrels, and as soon as it comes out, it just goes everywhere. And if they hit a clay bird, they barely ever can miss, but they hit it with one BB and there's a little thing, you know, like that. Well, today, this is the shotgun approach to the Word of God. It is not a bullet. So we are going to look at 27 books of the Bible, the New Testament. That means I have approximately one minute and ten seconds to do each book of the Bible. You have, will probably never hear that again, probably never want to. But the point is, we're encouraging you. Peter read a scripture this morning that said, we are to hide God's word in our heart. We have used that, and rightly so, to say, memorize scripture. So in addition to getting into the word of God and reading it, I would encourage you to memorize it. Hide it in your heart. But if you look that word up, you will find the word hide has to do with hiding, but it also has to do with, and basically, to treasure something that's valuable in your life. And we want you to treasure the Word of God, whether it's by reading it consistently, obviously putting it into practice, and by memorizing it. If you do not, and by the way, I do not care exactly how you get it in the Word of God on a regular basis. That's totally up to you and God. Some people, my wife, our daily bread is what she goes by. You'll find her every morning sitting at the kitchen table with her Bible, the daily bread, etc. Without fail, that's what she does. That's fine. No problem with that. Some people are floundering around. One of the reasons that I put in the bulletin through the Bible in three years. I used to put it in one year. People would get it about February and they're done because they got so far behind. So I said, you know what? There's no reason you can't do it in three years. So this year is the New Testament. So to get you in that direction, and especially for those of you that need a kickstart, is I'm going to talk about the New Testament and what you can anticipate when you go into the New Testament. Again, if you have some other re way, if you want to read through the Bible in, in one year, please do that. I've done that numerous times myself. Uh, it's a challenge. Uh, if you have some other way you do it, that's fine. There are all kinds of apps and websites and things like that that will help you keep you on target. Most of us need something to keep us on target. Otherwise, it goes by the wayside quickly. So if what's in your bulletin helps you, 
praise the Lord. I'm just going to emphasize that. And uh, I will tell you, there's one book, no matter what you do, I'm encouraging you in the next month or so to read through the book of 1 Corinthians at least one time. Here's why. After encounter comes and leaves, I'm going to finally, I promised this six months ago and it didn't happen yet, but I'm going to preach through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you read through the book of 1 Corinthians and you haven't done it for a while, you're going to go, what in the world is this talking about? How should I look at this? What does this mean? Because the, the Corinthian church was the bad child of all the churches in the New Testament. And so almost every chapter and sometimes several uh, issues in a chapter, they deal with another problem. They had to do with interpersonal relationships. They had to do with how do you minister? What is the role of husband, uh, men and women? Uh, it had to do with doctrine, the resurrection and, and how to give. All kinds of things in there. And there are all kinds of things that you go, yeah, I always wondered about that. So how should I see that? Well, we'll be looking at lots of different things. And believe me, you'll hit a lot of the main topics in the book of 1 Corinthians. So read through it at least one time so you have an idea of where I will be going. So with that as a background, I now have 29 minutes, which means I have about one minute per book. So my Sunday school class was praying for me that I would not go into a hacking fit during this, so far I'm okay. So you can pray silently if you would like. That um, but The last coughing fit I had was 4 o'clock this morning. So uh, praise the Lord, I'm doing good at this point. The first four books of the Bible, you already know, they're called the Gospels. It means good news. It's the good news about the life, the death, and the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It simply means good news. It is the story of Jesus himself. It is the basis for the faith that we have. It is the basis for the rest of the New Testament. We don't live in the Gospels per se, but they are absolutely the foundation for all the epistles and everything else that comes after that. Everything that the church is based upon is found in the Gospels. Some of what I'm going to say in the next four or five minutes, you'll go, I've heard this so many times, and others will go, wow, I never knew that. Because each of the Gospels is written for a different purpose to a different people group. If, it, if you don't understand that, you will get some things really messed up in your mind when you try to apply it. So let's look at that, and you can follow right along with the outline. I'm going to try to stick right with the outline at this point. Jesus Christ is seen as the king of the Jews. He is presented as royalty. He is presented as the one who is coming in the line of David. In fact is the genealogy of Jesus comes through Joseph. You heard me talk about this a few weeks ago and it shows that he has the right to rule and reign on the throne of David. He is the lineage of David and it is by this book. He has the right to reign. When the Magi came they came and they said, where is he born king of the Jews? And as you go through the book, you will find it talks over and over again about being a king or kingdom. Seventy times it's over and over again. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the king, by the way, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. You've got to go to the last book of the Bible to, to find that phrase, but... 
You understand that in this year ahead and in all of your life, we are to bow to him because he is the king of kings. The Jewish people needed to know that. They were looking for that one who was going to come. Now, they were looking for someone to win battles. And he will. We've got to go to the last book for that. But he came as their king, the promised one, that would indeed lead them. If he is a king, he deserves to be bowed to, to be worshipped. The book of Mark presents him as the perfect servant. Mark was written to the Roman culture. The Romans ruled the world. What they said went. The word immediately. If you use King James Version, it says straightway. doesn't matter what the word is. It simply means do it. Do it now. Because they knew what servanthood looked like. Half of, the, half of the population were slaves. They knew exactly what it meant. If you said, told to do it, do it now and do it immediately. That's what this book is about. It's short. It's to the point. And this Roman audience would understand that. Not a lot of details about the culture behind it. A lot of those things just simply aren't there. Because the Romans didn't know Jewish culture. But what they needed to know is about the one who brought good news. Actually, the one who is the good news. They needed to know about him also. And so, <coughs> you will find that the word immediately, and even that little three-letter word, and, because it just kept linking everything together, and it's found over and over again. Luke, on the other hand, was written to a philosophical um, audience, the Greeks. The Greek philosophies and religions were behind the Roman civilization, culture, and the Roman gods. Now, I'm not going to do this because maybe when I was younger I could have done it and it would have been impressive, but no longer. You know one of the most famous Greek statues, the thinker. Now, when you think of a thinker, you think of somebody that's out of shape and all that, and he's just using his brain. Well, the thinker, man, he's there, he's got his muscles flexed, and he is thinking, you know, like we do. Because guess what? The Greeks were looking for something. They were looking for the perfect man in body and in mind. They wanted to. They were into philosophy. They were bodybuilders. You name whatever you want to call that. They were looking for the perfect man. Jesus Christ comes along and says, you know what? What you've been looking for all along, it's me. I am the perfect one. I represent what humanity should be, could have been, was at one time. I am that person. It was a Greek audience. Worship him. Serve him. Oh, and by the way, we can know. We can have our minds right. This world says, nobody really knows. That's called postmodernism. Nobody really knows what the answer is. Jesus said, not a chance. I will show you the answer. God didn't just write it and say, here's the answer. No, he wrote it. Yes, we have it. But he gave us the answer in a person. That's Jesus Christ, the perfect man. And then you get to John. John is different than the other ones. Because John was written to a general audience. Kind of fits us. 
But it was written for a very, very specific purpose. That we would believe and have life. To those that had not believed, that didn't know, they needed to believe. But to believers said, no, you know what? I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. A cut above, not just existence. I came to give you real living. That's why I came. And he is presented from the very beginning and the whole way through the book. He is presented as God in the flesh. Now that does not mean the other Gospels didn't do that. But it takes us not to a genealogy, like in Luke it's Mary's genealogy, the human component of who Jesus is. But way back before anything else existed. He is God. And it presents it. And he is the one that you can trust. The one you can believe in. When you look at it many times, we encourage people who are new believers to read the Gospel of John. Because it just goes back over and over again to the whole concept (coughs) that Jesus is God. And he is the one that you can believe in. He's the one that you can trust. And when you believe in him, you have eternal life. It is the one that says, trust Him. You can have life and you can live that way. And then we go to the book that sometimes causes people trouble. Because the book of Acts is a book of transition. They had been living under the Gospels in the life of Jesus, in the time of Jesus. They'd been living under the law. And I realized that Jesus came and fulfilled the law. He absolutely did that. But now, what do you do after the law's been fulfilled? How do you live after that? How do you live out that faith? The book of Acts, I think is my wife's favorite New Testament book. Because it's so exciting. Every time you turn the page, there's something new happening. It's building and building and building. Because guess what? It is the book of beginnings in a lot of ways. It's the beginning of the church, the day of Pentecost. It is the book that gives us the firsts of many things. It gives us the foundation for the epistles. It is the history of Christ building his church. The king in Matthew chapter, I mean in in the book of Matthew, said, I will build my church. And Acts says, and I am building my church. I am the one that is actually doing what I said I would do. And so you got to be careful in the book of Acts because of that transition going from being under the curse, under the law, bringing death to, wow, we live in a different economy. We're in the age of grace. The acts of the apostles, I rather prefer that would be the acts of the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the church. Very different. And you're going to find some things and you go, Hold it a second. This doesn't sound quite right. It's because you're in the middle. There's no doubt about it. So keep that in mind when you read through it. But exciting. And then when you read through it, you see that history of Christ building the church for the first years. And then you see the letters and how they fit with the different cities and the different uh, locations where the Apostle Paul and others were ministering. It puts the whole thing together. It's sort of the backbone for the rest of the New Testament. But the key thing from the very beginning says, 
If this is true, and we're in a different economy, then the Holy Spirit has given you power. And that power is to take the gospel, to be witnesses of what Jesus Christ has done. And you start with your neighbors, and you start with the next door neighbor after that, and then you go to the county, and then you go to the state, and then you go to your country, and then you go way beyond that to the other most parts of the earth. The book of Acts challenges us more than any other book, I believe, to missions. And we need to see that, and we need to put that into practice. You say, but I want to know about this faith. Now you get to the book of Romans. Paul is a lawyer par excellence. He is going to give us the legal defense of what Christ has done. Our full salvation. Key verse. The just shall live by faith. The way that's written in Greek. The one who has already been justified shall in the future live by faith. In the same way that you trusted Christ by faith alone. We don't have a whole lot of problem with that one. But I, now I have to live day by day, moment by moment. And as I counseled somebody, thought by thought. As I go through. It's always by faith and nothing else. The Apostle Paul makes that so clear. We are to live by faith. The key word, I believe, is the word justify. I have been declared right with God. I didn't deserve it. I didn't work for it. I didn't do anything. He declared me righteous. It's the legal defense. You want to get down to brass tacks? This is the place to go. And then we get to 1 Corinthians. As I already said, it was the bad boys of the New Testament. They were the bad boys of the New Testament. I'm going to call it this. You know one of my favorite phrases. Ministry is messy. This one proves it. Yeah, ministry is messy. If you're going to uh, confront the culture, you're going to confront people, you're going to confront sin. It's a messy business. You need to deal with problems. Because we can live wisely in a world that's full of darkness and foolishness and misinformation. You can be wise. But the only way you're going to do that is you have to confront these issues with truth. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does. He doesn't pull punches with them. He just says, hey, this is the way you do it. Wisdom is, as you know, putting truth into practice. Foolishness is knowing the truth and not practicing it. He says, no, you can live wisely. You can change your life. And he makes that very clear to them. Um, they are being saved. It is, how do I live out my salvation? Second Corinthians deals with ministry. It, it deals with things like, you have to answer for what you do in your life. You have to answer for the deeds done in the body, whether, and I'm, this is my paraphrase, worthless, worthwhile or worthless. You have to answer for what you do with your life. And that's what he's telling the Corinthians after they get some of these things straightened out. It's like, okay, now it's not only right to, okay to think right, but now you need to act right. And God is going to hold you accountable for that. And uh, we need to minister to other people. That's what we do with our lives. And we need to live for others. In Galatians, we find... The Judaizers. They said, oh, we believe in this Christ stuff. 
We believe you have to trust Christ, but you have to put yourself back under the law. You have to do some of these Old Testament things and that will make you better or that will help you out. And he says, not a chance because the law brought a curse. It brought death. It's all it could do. It was an external restraint. Never brought salvation to anyone. Now you can live in freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. In fact, as he goes on in verse 13 of chapter 5 to say, don't let this freedom be turned into an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, just because you have freedom doesn't mean go back and sin. He says, no, no, no. Use that freedom, the freedom you have for the first time in your life since you trusted Christ, to do what is right. Use it for the right reason. And Galatians tells us, you know what? That old curse, that's the past. That brought bondage. He said, don't be again back in a yoke of slavery. If you want to find that out, that's all uh, Galatians chapter 5. Don't go back there. Live in freedom. But living in freedom is not living with a license to sin. It's I have a new life. I can live out that new life. That's Galatians. Ephesians gives us real unity. It, it, it irritates me so much that well-meaning and sometimes not well-meaning people say, well, Christianity is all about love and it's all about not having divisions and it's all about unity. Why can't we just all get along and everybody... You know what? Even Christ said, I'm going to bring division. Mother against daughter and son against father and wife against husband. And wow, you go, hold it, that in the Bible? If you heard what I hear a lot of times, you would never know that those things are in the Bible. Now there is a true unity and a true unity that brings peace. But Ephesians makes it clear you got to be looking the here, not this way. You're looking up. It's in the heavenlies. That's where the true unity comes. He brought people together, Jew and Gentile, into one body. No doubt about that. But our unity is not that everybody does exactly the same thing. But no, our unity is that if you've trusted Christ, you're a believer, you're a son of God, you have a citizenship in heaven. But I'll tell you what, as with the rest of it, if you take out this whole concept, the New Testament doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he is confronting things that are not true over and over again in 1 Corinthians or Galatians, but over and over again. Unity brings peace when it's based on Jesus Christ, not on the things that you can see in organization. By the way, I am not saying, oh, hey, let's go out and see how much fights, how many fights we can get in. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's just the opposite of that. It's like, no, no. If I get focused on the Word of God, I get focused on Christ Himself, then there's real unity, even though you don't necessarily always see the full results of it. Philippians, the book of Christian joy. 4.4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Wow. That's a pretty tall order in case, in case you didn't notice that. It goes on to say, don't be anxious for anything, but you can pray about it. And then it says, hey, 
Get your mind right. Think on things that are lovely and good and good reputation and pure and all those kinds of things. I use Philippians chapter 4 probably more than any other passage in counseling with people. Because anxiety is what the world is made out of today. Anybody disagree with that? I mean, everybody's anxious all over the place. They're worried. They're concerned. Paul says, no, you can live in joy. And you can get your thoughts right. And you can see other people's examples. And as a result of that, you can live in contentment. Just continue reading in Philippians chapter 4. And you'll find that he learned to be content in whatever circumstances he was in. Good and bad. But continuing on in Colossians. Colossians is the book that says you don't need someone other than Christ. Lots of religions and systems today have a step system to get to God. Gnosticism. You don't need to know that. It's just simply this. There's one mediator. Christ is the total fulfillment in bodily form of God. And that's who He is. You don't need someone else. Everything that we have is complete in our relationship with Christ. You cannot and should not add anything else. In fact, is He says, don't live according to tradition and false doctrine. If you do, all of those things take away from who Christ is. You focus totally on Christ. And then we go into the two books that look toward the return of Christ. The first one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says, We've been saved from the wrath to come. And later on in chapter 4, it says, Christ is going to come back in the clouds, nod his feet on the ground. Remember last week's sermon? And he's going to take us, snatch us away, caught up. He's going to come and get us. Save us from the wrath to come, the tribulation. And he says, in light of that, you need to live with expectancy. If you live with expectancy, you don't simply say, well, Christ is going to come back. I'm not going to go through the tribulation. You go, whoa, Christ has done some marvelous things and I am going to use my time effectively. The fact is, when you get to 2 Thessalonians, you find out that some of the people had even quit their job. Remember that famous verse that people use, uh, if someone won't work, neither let them eat? You know what they had done? They had stopped working because they convinced themselves that Christ was going to come back and they didn't need to do anything anymore. And the Apostle Paul is saying, not a chance. If you believe Christ is coming back, then live that way. Live that way. Live expectantly. Live with diligence in a disciplined way. I put in my notes, keep on keeping on for the Lord. That's what we need to do. The next three books are what people have titled pastoral epistles. The Apostle Paul had done his missionary work. He had gone to various places. He had preached the gospel. He had begun churches, groups of believers there. And they needed spiritual leaders. And two of them were Timothy and Titus. In fact, is Timothy had a problem. He was a little bit of a younger guy. And he said, God hasn't given you the spirit of timidity or fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. Live that way. Live as an example to the people you preach to. 
Live out what you know to be true. Live to minister. In other words, don't just look at this. In my Sunday school class, we talked about, I have a real problem with this clergy and laity thing. I don't like either one of those all that much. Uh, you could discuss that till the cows come home. But here's the point. There's no big separation between the two. He said, Timothy, you're young. Don't let anybody despise you. Because here's what I've done for you. You should do what I've asked you to do. And don't back down and don't think twice about it. Do what you need to do as a pastor, as a spiritual leader in the church. Be a living example. The fact is, he said, fight the good fight. Don't back down. Don't give up. And in 2 Timothy, he basically says, you know what, Timothy? Live strong. Be a servant. Do what I've asked you to do. Minister. Don't back down. Don't opt out. Continue on. Go forward. Titus, just a little bit different. He challenged him. Titus, you need to tell the people that they need to engage in good works. Not those things that are unprofitable. Not those things that are worthless. Because it is possible to play church. It is possible to be a Christian and waste your time totally and do things that are not just not good. They're unprofitable. Means they're no help, no benefit, no good to anybody else. It's possible. You can do that. He said, Timothy, I mean, Titus, I want you to make sure that you live that way and you teach everybody else to live that way. You need to live right. And when you live right, you will teach people, you will, and you will encourage people to engage in good works. You've, I've said it so many times. People don't care what you say unless they first know you care. Titus will back that up big time. But continue on. Philemon. Short book, one chapter. There's only one more like that. That's Jude. But doesn't mean just because they're short and they're only one chapter, they don't mean anything. Philemon goes kind of this way. Live graciously. Give and act in a way that you do more than is expected. Don't just do what you should do. Do more. That's what the Apostle Paul did when he wrote this letter. He's saying, you know what? I could do this, I could do that, but go above and beyond. Forgive. Let the past be the past. Move on. And allow God to do what he wants to do. Live in a gracious, useful manner. Do more than is expected. Hebrews is a commentary on the Old Testament. You say, I've read the Old Testament, it's confusing. Guess what? God knew that would happen. He gave us the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, from the very beginning to the end, says, Here is Christ he is above and beyond everything else. Higher than the angels. Higher than the Old Testament prophets. Higher than Moses. He is greater, more perfect than any of those things. I kind of personally like chapter 8. I like chapter 10. Actually, I like it all. But chapter 8 says, you know what? These old things. Remember those old things you used to 
put yourself under all the law and the rules and the regulations and the sacrifices and the offerings. He says, those things are becoming obsolete. They're passing away. You know what? Christ has fulfilled all of those things. Nothing wrong with the Old Testament. It's good, right? It's holy. It's all of those things. But they all, all those principles pointed to Jesus Christ, the one who ultimately would fulfill them, the only one that could ultimately fulfill them. One of the key phrases there is that the children of Israel, as they unfold the story, they didn't enter into God's rest. That's a problem. Doesn't mean they weren't saved. It simply means they didn't appropriate fully what Christ had done. They didn't recognize the complete, total, and finished work of Jesus Christ and rest in that. They were still striving to do things to hope they're right with God. Just not true. It's a total backward system. And, and he said, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author, the beginning, and the finisher, the end of your faith. He's the beginning and the end. Anything else you stick in there doesn't belong there. That's what he wants us to, to focus on. In other words, if you're going to rest in Christ, you're going to live a mature Christian life. Immature Christians are still floundering all over the place, wondering what to believe in, what to trust. He says, you don't need to live that way. Moving on. James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. doesn't say that anywhere. But James is the first book that was written, most likely. And it is the book of practical Christian wisdom. It just says, you know what? Here's how you live. Not a long book, but one thing right after the other. We need to live in a way that uh, gives us wisdom. The fact is, the key verse, or one of the key verses there, says, to the person who knows what to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Yeah, that's the same word sin as I killed somebody or I lied to somebody or I cheated. If I know what to do, do it! That's it. If you don't, you're sinning. I'll tell you what, that's pretty, that's pretty straightforward, right? So I knew what to do, but I uh, just neglected it. James says, that's sin. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> we don't normally think of life that way. First and second, Peter looks at Christians and the hard times in life. Suffering. Because I'm out of time, I'll do it this way. You can read the paper. Simply this. There are two kinds of suffering. One, because you're living in sin or not being obedient, and you suffer. Don't pat yourself on the back and look, oh, poor me, look, I'm suffering for the Lord. No, you're not. You're suffering because you're sin. You're in sin. On the other hand, if you have checked your life and you've examined your life and you find out, hey, I'm not doing anything wrong, but I'm still suffering, then it just says, you know what? You're doing exactly what your Savior did. He's been your example all along. And so in the tough times, it always comes back to we look to Christ. You look around you, you will get discouraged. You will not live honorably. You will not live consistently. Fact is, it ends, but 
grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and stay away from those things that would distort the Word of God. <clears throat> First, second, and third John are very personal. First John is the book of knowledge. The word know is used over 40 times, used two different words. One means, I know that it's two minutes past when we should have quit. I know that because I can see the clock back there. On the other hand, the other word, gnosko, means I know this by experience. I know how to do work on an engine because I've done that. I didn't read a book. Well, I read a book, but I, I've done it. I know that I can stand in front of people and explain the Word of God. Why? Because I've done it. That's experience. He says, you know what? If you want to have full salvation, a full assurance of salvation, it's not only, oh, I know I trusted Christ and I have life. That's the Gospel of John. First John says, you know and you carry it out and it gives you the full assurance that you know it's true in your life. I always say, if, if somebody told me they were a plumber and I asked them to solder a pipe for me and they said they didn't know how, I would doubt if they're a plumber. plumber. That's my dumb illustration, but that's what I use. Anyway, the other two, it's simply this. Looking at the next generation. Seeing children, walk, spiritual children, walking in the truth. Living in love. Living obediently. And then there's Jude. I'm not sure why Jude is right there at the end, but here's what it comes down to earnestly contending for the faith. There is a time, and the church better do this, or we're, in, or we're already in big trouble. I don't mean Garden Chapel, but I mean church as a whole. Church as a whole is already in big trouble. Because you know what? They let anything go. We don't want to say anything. We don't want to rock the boat, and maybe somebody will sue us, or somebody will look at us funny. You know what? It says it's time to earnestly contend for the faith. By the way, that was 2,000 years ago. We're not doing it. But that's what it says. Earnestly contend for the faith. We need to defend the faith. It's time to stand up and be counted. And why can I do that? Because the book of Revelation is there too. I know the end of the book. We win! Ah, and I also know there's a place called the Lake of Fire. Most people call it hell. Both of them are eternal. If you've trusted Christ, no problem. You're going to be... You know, at the judgment seat of Christ, then you'll be, have to answer for what you've done. But there's also a great white throne. Those that have not trusted Christ have to answer for their deeds there too, but they're not having a second chance. They're going to the lake of fire. Truth is, it is really encouraging to know we win in the end. It is also a kick to all of us to know that if we don't do our job and there are people that don't know about Christ, we have some responsibility. We have some blood on our hands. Yeah, we do. The New Testament will comfort you, no doubt about it. It'll give you information, no doubt about that. It will tell us what we can do. It will tell us all the benefits of being a Christian. And it'll also say, you know what? You have something to do. Live earnestly. Live with diligence. Fight the good fight. Because this is a matter of life and death, black and white, heaven and hell. It really is. I hope that we catch that for the year ahead. If you haven't caught that, I will just challenge you one more time. Read the New Testament. 27 books. You could read it. Seriously, you could probably read it in 27 days if you wanted to. If you chose to. Some of them you could read it in 
Five minutes, you can read Jude in five minutes. You know what? I just challenge you. Get in the word of God. Allow it to do its intended work. Let's all stand together as we close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for challenging us, but we thank you for encouraging us. I pray that as we look at the year ahead, that we would just simply not be lukewarm. The last book tells us the lukewarm he wants to spit out of his mouth. I pray that we'd be hot or cold, that we would stand to be counted, that people would know exactly who we are, know who our Savior is, and they would see us living out what we truly believe. Lord, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy New Year. Go with God and be a blessing to someone else.